Well, good morning. We praise God for the privilege of gathering this morning together as the church and being with one another. You know, as I was back there singing, I was just thinking about how the Lord gives us love for one another. You know, that love, the love that is, is God, the love that God has between the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the eternal love is poured out into the hearts of God's people so that we are enabled to love one another. So this is really a gathering of love, something that we see uh, little inklings of this love because we're made in God's image all around us. Lost people love their children. They love their wives and husbands. But what we see here is the love of God flowing out between the people of God. And so it's such a blessing to gather today. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 32, we will be in verses 22 to 32 this morning. And I want to just start by thanking Mark Grosso for preaching last Sunday. He preached uh, to us, and I say us because I was able to listen to it on podcast. He preached to us on Jesus's question to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And when I originally talked to Mark about this, he had really been captivated by that passage or by that story, which shows up in the other Gospels as well or in some of the other Gospels. He had been captured by that by actually going there and seeing this place and being moved by, uh, by being there himself. And he brought up in his sermon the question that Jesus asked, which was, who do you say that I am? And Mark talked about this in his sermon, but I just want to reiterate that to spring off of last week and say that each of us has to answer that question. And it's not a question that you can avoid because it's a question that you will answer uh, whether you verbalize it or not, you'll answer it based on how you live your life. You will either submit to Christ as the Lord or you will be your own Lord. You will be your own king. You will either trust Christ's work to save you, or you will trust your own works to, whatever that means, save you. So this morning, I just want to put before us once again the question, who do you say that Christ is? That's the, that's the reason we're preaching this morning. That's the reason we're singing. That's the reason we're here is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not here to give morality for life. We're not here to spend time together. That's important. And morality for life is important. God's morality, morality that flows out of his creation and his scripture. But why we're here is Christ. That there is a crucified, risen Christ to whom we must submit and whom we must trust. And without him, we are building our lives on sinking sand. So who do you say Christ is? So Genesis 32, today, as we return to our series in Genesis, we come to a pivotal, life-changing moment in the life of the patriarch Jacob. You'll notice in your ESV Bible, most of you, I would imagine, have an ESV Bible since that's what we use here, but you may not. Uh, and I'm not sure what the other, the editors of the other uh, translations put as the heading. By the way, those headings are not part of the original scripture. They're put in by the editors of the different translations. And so in the ESV translation, the heading for this passage, verses 22 to 32, is Jacob wrestles with God. 
if this is, that this really does sound fine if we're merely talking about something metaphorical. But we're not. We're not talking about something metaphorical. We're not talking about a dream. We're not talking about a, a vision. This is a physical, literal wrestling with God that takes place in the life of Jacob. At the very least, we would say that this is a strange passage that leaves us with many questions. And I just want to capture that quickly with you uh, by quoting a couple of commentators on this. So one is John Selhammer, and he says, there are many unanswered questions in this brief narrative. So do not think that all of those questions are going to be answered uh, in a sermon. There are many questions that are raised and many that will have to remain unanswered, I think. Another commentator, Alan Ross, says, To be sure, something unusual has been recorded, and the reader is struck immediately with many questions, some of which probably cannot be answered to any satisfaction. So we recognize that there are passages in the Bible that are particularly difficult, uh, hard to deal with. We've seen that in a moral context with Lot's daughters. You can go back and read that. I won't recap. Uh, we, can, we, we saw that with what happened in Sodom with Lot at the doorway, difficult passages. But we've also seen this in other sorts of passages as the Lord has worked with his people. At the very beginning of uh, Genesis chapter 6, we had to deal with what is going on with the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and the daughters of men having children with them Are those the descendants of uh, Canaanites or uh, with, with the descendants of the Sethites? Or are those angels who are actually mating with human women? Difficult passage. So we find these passages throughout and we come to one again today. I have entitled the sermon for today, A New Name, A New Man. And you'll find this in your bulletin and you can look on the second page there, the, the, the back of the first page, and you'll see the outline, A New Name, and a new, a new name, a new man as the title. At the heart of this passage is a name change. When you read through the passage quickly, the, the main thing that pops us is that this is a shift in the name from Jacob to Israel. Verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. But this is not simply God coming to Jacob and revealing a name change as he did with Abraham. Remember that with Abraham, his name was Abram, and then God changed his name to Abraham. So this is not merely, as we read there with Abraham, a God coming and revealing a, a, a change in the name. This is God changing Jacob's name after an entire night of intense physical struggle. This is new. And it happens as he is entering the promised land. And it happens after he has spent years in Laban's house. And it happens as he is about to meet Esau, his brother who wanted to kill him. So the timing of this is very significant. You'll remember from two weeks ago that Esau or that Jacob has left Laban's house where he worked for 20 years to get his wives and his children and, and, he, and his flocks and herds. God has blessed him so tremendously. He leaves Laban and now he's going to face his brother Esau. Well, the whole reason he left Canaan 
Initially was because his brother Esau was wanting to kill him. And so now he's got to go back and face Esau, facing danger. He sends messengers wondering what Esau's heart and mind is. And the messengers come back and say this, that when they came to Esau, Esau didn't say a word. He's just approaching now with 400 men. So Jacob has all his little children. He's got his wives. He's got all of his wealth that God has given him. And he's approaching Esau, who 20 years ago wanted to kill him, and 400 men with him. That's the timing of this strange event. So this is a transformative moment in Jacob's life. It's pivotal. It's crucial. Yes, a new name, but also a new man. We will see after this passage a new man. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're in Genesis 32, as I said at the beginning, verses 22 to 32. This is God's holy word. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You can go ahead and be seated. This is really an incredible passage. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing passage, but it is definitely a strange one. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's grace as we go through it so that we would understand it and we would, we would uh, have it massaged into our lives and hearts by the Holy Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to come before you now as a church. Father, we know how much you love your church. We know how much you love your church universal all of your people throughout the ages who have looked to the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, who have looked to the son of David, the son of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, Christ. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your 
church. And we pray that as we gather now as a church that to hear your word, to sit under your word, Father, we pray that you would reveal to us our sin, that you would show us through the illumination of your word by the Spirit, that you would show us our weakness, our frailty, that you would show us your power, your glory, your goodness. Father, we pray that we would see all of your power and glory and goodness in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, incarnate. Father, we thank you for him, that he came to us, that he uh, lived among us, that he died in our place, that he rose from the dead, that he has ascended into heaven and passed through the heavens, that he is seated now at your right hand, and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to raise those who have trusted in him. Father, we pray that this morning our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ would be encouraged, would be strengthened, and that we would turn away from faith and confidence in the things of this world, in the weak, sinking sand of this life, in the chaff of this life, and that we would look to Christ, the God-man, the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of your people. Father, we thank you for him, and we pray that you would show us your truth this morning as we study it, Lord, that we would come away changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things to consider this morning as we walk through this unusual narrative, and you'll see these, as I said before, on the bulletin. We're going to look at the men, the match, and the memorials. The men, the match, and the memorial. So let's look first at the men. Go with me again to verses 22 to 24, and let's just highlight those, read those again as we unpack them. So verses 22 to 24. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. And this, of course, is referring to the sons in particular, because the nation is really in view here. It's not to disregard Dinah, the daughter, but that's the reason for 11 as the sons are primarily being highlighted. And his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. You almost want to read that. If you're reading this quickly, you read that verse. What? Hold on a second. Did I just read? Did I read that right? And a man wrestled. See, it just comes out of nowhere. Just seems so strange and random. Here in these verses, we have two men. The one who is alone and the one who is mysterious. Two men in these opening verses. So we're going to look at each of these. First, the man who is alone. As Jacob crosses this stream, he is continuing his movement away from Laban in Mesopotamia towards Bethel in the promised land. Remember that when God came to Jacob as he was sleeping on a stone there in, in this place that was later named Bethel, that, that when he awoke, he, he made a promise to the Lord essentially that, he would, that he, this would be the house of God, that if God would look after him, he would come back to this place. He would worship the Lord here. And we see in Genesis 35, just a couple of chapters from now, we're going to see that God brings Jacob back to that very spot and he does their worship with all of the people with him. He worships the Lord at Bethel. And so what we're witnessing here is a movement from the house of Laban to the house of God, which is what Bethel means. He is moving towards Bethel. There is fear and there is courage. He has prayed after recognizing 
who God is and what he's done, as well as his own unworthiness. He says back in verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. He's praying to the Lord. And we've already seen this. This was the last passage before the one we're at today. He said, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He's scared. He is genuinely afraid that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He's afraid that, that he and his family will be massacred by his brother. So he's, he's afraid. And he has sent ahead a massive gift of over 500 animals to appease his brother. It's incredible. He sends these animals, over 500 animals, in waves. And each wave of animals is meant to give sort of a, a layer of appeasement so that Esau's angry maybe at first and that first wave, okay. And then, and then the second wave, the third wave, donkeys and camels and sheep and goats, all of these things coming at Esau in waves. And each time there are servants who are saying, Jacob, your servant is behind us, and he's coming. So he has sent this massive gift. We see fear mixed with courage. And for some reason, at this juncture, he takes some time to be alone. It's not because he's hiding in the back. I think this might be a misconception that Jacob sends his whole family and let them come to Esau first, and then he's in the back, and then he'll come to Esau last. No, he's not being a coward here. He's not in the back. As we'll read later in chapter 33, verse 3, it says that he goes on before his family to meet Esau. So when the family comes to meet Esau, Jacob is in the front of his whole family, and he's bowing down to Esau as he approaches him. Maybe he is wanting some more time in prayer, returning to his earlier condition in which he met God, alone with nothing. Remember that as Jacob leaves his home to go and get a wife or to go and escape the, the hostility of his brother, remember as he is there in the place that he named Bethel, he's all alone. He has absolutely nothing. And it's in that moment of solitude and poverty that God comes to Jacob and speaks to him and, and reassures him and promises him, blesses him, makes himself known to him. It's in that moment, in that situation and condition. And so it seems to me at this point that Jacob is in a sense recreating that condition. He's recreating that situation. He sends the family on ahead. We know he's already prayed to the Lord. He's in a kind of state of prayer. He sends his family on ahead and he hangs back to sort of revisit with God in the same condition in which he first met God. But whatever the reason, and it's not clear that this is why, it doesn't tell us, the text doesn't tell us why he hangs back, but this seems to me to be the best explanation. But whatever the reason for his staying back for a night, we can be pretty confident that he does not anticipate what is about to happen. That what happens in this story is not something that he's prepared for or waiting for. This comes as a shocker, what we're about to look at in a moment. It comes out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, he is attacked by someone. It's dark. He can't even see. And all of a sudden, someone just grabs him. 
and he starts to wrestle with this person, as anyone would. If someone comes up behind you, and uh, some of you, I think, take jujitsu, and you've got very special ways of dealing with that. But, but someone comes up behind you, grabs you, and starts to slam you to the ground, you're going to react to that. You're going to do something. You're not going to just stand there. And that's what we have here. Someone comes out of nowhere and attacks him. Not what he is expecting. And I think there's a little implication for us. I just want to pause here for a moment before we continue in the story. And I want to draw out this implication for us. And it's this. When we come to God, we may expect one thing. And God does something entirely different. Have you ever thought about that? We come to God in our prayer lives, in the way that we go about the Christian life, the way we're relating to God. And sometimes we put God in a nice, neat little box. Sometimes we think that we can control God. We, we tame God. And so we approach God on our terms, in our way, in our own timing. And we ask him for things. We approach him for things. And he is to work according to our expectations. And what we see here is that this comes out of nowhere for Jacob. This is contrary to any expectations in terms of answered prayer. He has prayed to God, and this is God's answer. I think this tells us that our encounters with God, his dealings with us, are according to his wisdom and may very well entail your discomfort. That you may seek the Lord, you may pray to the Lord and ask him to relate to you in a certain way in his goodness, in his fatherly love. And what he does, the means he uses are utterly shocking and quite uncomfortable. Are we prepared for that kind of Christian Life. You see, Jesus' parable of the sower and the seeds really, I think, encapsulates this idea is that when we go about, uh, when, when the gospel goes out to people, it falls on the hearts of some people who don't understand this about the Christian gospel. And so when trials or persecution come, they're happy about Jesus at first. But when trials and persecution comes, in other words, when God works unexpectedly, not according to their plan, no more Jesus. No more God. I don't want that stuff. I didn't sign up for this. That's not a real Christian. A real Christian is one who God deals with in these ways. And they trust him through that. Imperfectly, of course. But trusting him in the midst of his unexpected dealings with us. So first we have the man who is alone. Second, we have the man who is mysterious. When the text tells us that Jacob is alone, it makes clear that this person is not from Jacob's camp. So why is the text so intent on telling us? Why is the author so intent on telling us that Jacob is alone? Well, part of the reason I think is what I said earlier, that he's sort of recreating the condition from earlier. But another part of this is that we are meant to understand that this is not someone from Jacob's camp. Remember, Jacob has all these servants. He has all these people. This is not someone from Jacob's camp who's just come and body slammed him. That's not what is going on here. There are no other men around. He is all alone. So who in the world could this be? 
This mysterious person is here called simply a man. A man in Hebrew, ish. But by the end of the narrative, we learn that this mysterious man is really God. This ish is really Elohim. This man is really God himself. So verse 30, if you look down at the end of the passage, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So in case you're in doubt as you go through it, and of course the ESV editors have already spoiled it for you at the very top there with the, the little heading. But if you're, if you're encountering this for the first time, you're going through it. By the time you get to verse 30, it is absolutely clear and it is explicit that this is God. This man is God. Hosea, the prophet, will later refer to this person as an angel, though, as an angel. Chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. In his manhood, talking about Jacob, he strove with God. So he gets that part, but then he says this. He strove with the angel. Well, hold on a second. Who is this man? Is he a man? Is he an angel? Is he God? Hosea says he strove with God. He strove with the angel. This is a mysterious person. Who is this? Is it God or an angel? Well, here we come back to this figure whom we've been introduced to already called the angel. Or the Hebrew word for angel just means messenger. The angel, the messenger of the Lord. And this individual is identified with the Lord himself. And we see this explicitly in two places. The angel of the Lord being identified with the Lord. Not, not merely a messenger of the Lord, but the Lord himself. We've seen that explicit in two places. First, with Hagar in chapter 16, verse 13. The Lord is equated with the angel of the Lord. And then to Abraham in the sacrifice of Isaac. Remember when we went through that passage in Genesis 22, verse 16. The angel of the Lord speaks to him. And then we get the Lord swearing by himself. Well, it's still the angel of the Lord speaking. And we see this at the burning bush. The one who appears to Moses in the bush is none other than the Lord himself. And yet it's said explicitly there to be the angel of the Lord who appears to him. And here, even more, to make it even more complicated or, or uh, unusual for us, here this figure appears in the form of a man. So he's not like, a, like, like you would expect an angel maybe to appear or like you might would expect the Lord to appear. He is, he's in the form of a man. He, he has a physicality with which he is able to wrestle Jacob physically. So he appears in the form of a man. But we've already seen this, right? This is what we saw with Abraham in Genesis 18 too. At the very beginning of chapter 18, remember Abraham's at his tent. And Sarah's there in the tent, and there, the text begins in chapter 18, the Lord appeared. And then it goes on in verse 2 to say, three men. So which is it? Did the Lord appear to Abraham, or did three men appear to Abraham? Well, as the story unfolds, we realize that one of these men, or one of these individuals in the form of a man, is the Lord himself. And two of them are angels that are sent down to Sodom and Gomorrah. To destroy it. So we've already seen the Lord make himself present, make himself known, evident in the form 
of a man. So what do we make of all of this? What do we make of this? I think, once again, we are seeing the appearance and activity of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. That's what we are seeing here. Before Christ, before the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word of God through whom he made all things. Before he became flesh and dwelt among us, we are seeing his activity in the Old Testament. And that's the reason why New Testament authors can say things like, Christ was with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And Isaiah can talk about seeing the Lord and John high and lifted up. That famous passage where the Lord touches his lips. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And John can refer to that passage and say that Isaiah saw Christ. Christ in the Old Testament. God is preparing his people to see him face to face. You have to see this. This this takes the Bible... The Old Testament and the New Testament, and it brings it together in this perfect unity. The Bible is one book. It is one story. It is made up of 66 books, but it is one unified narrative, one unified story. And we see this even here. God is preparing his people to see him face to face. Did you hear that? God is preparing his people, even in the day of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to see him face to face. To face in the person of his son, the God man. John 14, 8 to 9. I love these words of Jesus. In the farewell discourse, Jesus there about to go to the cross. He's with his disciples alone in the upper room. And here's what he says Well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus has been talking about the Father a lot. And Jesus said, The Father has sent me. And you have believed that the Father sent me, Jesus says to them. Lord, or, yeah, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. You just show us the Father, and we're good. We're, we're good. You can just skip this farewell discourse. You're, everything will be fine if you will just show us the Father. Jesus said to him, in these amazing words, Have I been with you so long and still? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, is Jesus equating himself with the Father there? No. We know that at the baptism that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct. The Father speaks from heaven. The Spirit comes down on Christ and Christ himself is there in the water with John the Baptist. One of the early heresies of the church is to equate, and you see this today with oneness Pentecostals, is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are are one person uh, revealing himself in modes, different modes. There's the mode of the Son and the mode of the Spirit and the mode of the Father. No, there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, which is why God can be said, to be eternal love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing eternally in a love relationship between one another. And here Jesus says, you are seeing the Father in my face. You are seeing the Father and his glory in my very self. Jesus himself is the temple. He tabernacles among us. He is the dwelling place of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. To see Christ is to see the God who sent him. So, 
we are getting glimpses of the triune God at work, even in Genesis 32, in the midst of a passage like this. We are being strengthened in our faith in Christ. Let me just ask this question. Has this time in Genesis elevated your trust in Christ? I know it has for me. That, that coming to the, these passages, passage after passage after passage, whether it's the line of the seed or the ark idea or the ways in which God reveals himself to the patriarchs, in all of this, going all the way back to the very beginning, that God said the spirit is over the water and God spoke and everything was. And then God said, let us make man in our own image. Are you seeing that the Bible is about Christ? Are you seeing that the Christ whom you've trusted didn't just appear on the scene 2,000 years ago. He's the eternal God. And he has been revealing himself to his people since Adam and Eve. So we've looked at the introduction to this narrative. Now let's look at the heart of it. That brings us to our second point, which is the match. We've looked at the men, the one who is alone, the one who is mysterious. Now we come to our second point, the match. So look with me at verses 25 to 29. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please Tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So here we are. This strange encounter. This wrestling match between God and Jacob. This is, this is really strange. How can it be said? How can it be said that Jacob prevailed against God? He's omnipotent all-powerful. How can it be said that anyone prevails against God at any time, in any place, under any circumstances? That's what it says. How can Jacob hold God down until he gets a blessing from him? Like holding his ankle, pulling him, just as he was his, his brother Esau with his little infant hand, grabbing Esau's hairy heel. Holding down this man, bless me, bless me. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. This is, this is strange indeed. And I think the basic answer is this. God chooses to appear to Jacob in this way. He condescends and orchestrates this entire event. God is orchestrating this entire event. This is not a slight on his omnipotence. It is God's will and plan to deal with Jacob in this way. It is God's design that Jacob prevail and that he gain a blessing. You may say, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, we haven't seen that before. Yes, we have seen that before. Just as it was God's design that Abraham plead for those in Sodom and taught God into sparing the city if he finds 10 righteous people there. Do you remember that? God says to Abraham, he says, I will spare the city if there are 50 righteous people there. And what do we go on to read? 
Abraham argues with God. He, he whittles him down to 10. Well, uh, I, I, will, I will speak to you again. I will speak to you again. How could you do this? Uh, would you do it for this many and that many? He gets him all the way down to 10. Talks him down and down. Chapter 18, verse 32. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. So in a sense, we've already seen Abraham wrestle with God verbally in this dialogue dealing with what to do about Sodom, what to do about Lot and his family, what to do about potentially other righteous people there in Sodom. Abraham wrestling with God verbally. So we've already seen this kind of relationship between God and his people. I want to submit this to you. In both of these stories, the Lord is being portrayed in a way that is very important for us to understand as Christians. The Lord is being portrayed as personal. Hear this, as personal. This is God. This is our God. As personal and responsive. He responds to his people. He responds to his people's cries for help. We know that God is unchanging. We know that his eternal decrees are sure and certain. And this is the mystery of it all. That in the midst of that sovereignty and in the midst of that ordination of events in history, that God responds to our prayer such that James can say, you have not because you ask not. God is responsive to us. And he is intimate and involved. With our lives. The same God who grabbed Jacob and wrestled him is with us this morning. He's intimately, personally, and responsively involved in our daily lives. So, what do we have going on with this wrestling match? Let me sum it up this way Jacob is simultaneously winning and wounded, he is both strong and weak. He is receiving a blow and a blessing. He is both the victor of the wrestling match and the injured inferior. This is really an incredible passage when you look at these two aspects of it. He is the victor and also the injured inferior. The fact that a mere touch from this person dislocates Jacob's hip, just a touch, boom, hip out of socket. The fact that a mere touch from this person dislocates Jacob's hip shows that he has supernatural power. His authority to change Jacob's name and render a blessing shows that he is the superior, as does his unwillingness to give Jacob his name. To give, to give your name is to avail yourself. It is to, in a way to submit yourself. And what we find here is that he does not give Jacob his name. And yet, Jacob prevails. The superior does not prevail. The inferior prevails. And all of this encapsulated, of course, in his new name, Israel. Verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which means he strives with God. Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So what is God doing here in the life of Jacob. I think this is really important as we draw out the applications from this passage for us as Christians. What is God doing in the life of Jacob in this event? 
I think three things. First, God is encouraging Jacob, just very basically. He is encouraging Jacob. The prevailing is an answer to his prayer. Do you see that? What did Jacob pray to the Lord? He said, basically, save me from my brother. Protect me and my family. Have it be that I'm not killed and my family killed with me. That, that my, my offspring perish. And what we have here in this prevailing is an answer to Jacob's prayer. You are prevailing and you will prevail. Just as he has prevailed against God, so too will he prevail with Esau. If he can prevail with God, then he will prevail over any man. That is what is going on. And so too will his descendants after him prevail. The first readers of Genesis. Remember who is reading this for the first time. You know, we're sitting here in these seats in this uh, maybe slightly warm cafeteria. But remember that the first readers probably are a little, little hotter than we are even now. They're in the middle of the desert. They're in the middle of the wilderness as the children of Israel, as the Israelites, the, the million plus descendants of Jacob gathered in the wilderness, hearing this word read probably by various Levites, reading this word and hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are hearing this, you will prevail. God has told them, you're going to go into Canaan and you're going to conquer those, those people who are performing all kinds of wickedness, bestiality and child sacrifice, and read Leviticus 18 and see the other things. God is going to judge them with his people. Just as he judged the world with a flood, he's going to flood that place with his people and the sword. And he's going to send them in. And he is telling them, this ragtag bunch of wilderness dwellers, you will prevail. That's who's reading this. And of course, this looks beyond Jacob. It looks beyond the nation of Israel to the Christ. The Christ will Prevail. He is bitten, struck, bruised on the heel. As Genesis 3.15 says, as he's hanging naked on the cross, bleeding and dying, mocked and ridiculed, the thief on the cross is mocking him too. He's totally alone. He's been betrayed by one of his own, and he has been denied by his closest disciple. He is dying naked in utter ridicule, bearing the wrath of God on the tree. And yet he has prevailed. He reigns supreme. Now, this very day, and one day he will come back in absolute fury and glory, and he will exercise a violent judgment upon rebel sinners. In this world. That's the Christ of the Bible. Not just the baby in the manger, pat, pat on the head. No, he will come back conquering king of the universe and destroy his enemies. That's the Christ of the Bible. That is the Christ to whom this text points. So this is a moment of immense encouragement and empowerment for Jacob as he faces his prospective enemy Esau. He has received the Lord's blessing in the most direct and intimate way. And he has received it face to face. He has, as it were, felt the sweat of this man who is God. I don't know if he was sweating. It's hard to parse all that out. But he has, he has been close, intimate, right there in the face of this man who is himself 
God. This is immensely encouraging for Jacob. But second, God is humbling Jacob. So, so God is encouraging Jacob. He's empowering him, but he is also humbling him. The blow to the hip left Jacob limping for the rest of his life. And you might think, well, that's kind of sad. I mean, that's really uncomfortable. He's going to be limping for the rest of his life. He's limping away from this situation. And yes, that is the case. This blow left him deformed, as it were, disabled. A constant reminder of his own weakness. Listen to this. A constant reminder with Jacob in his physical body of his weakness, inability, and limitations. What could he do against Esau and 400 men limping his way to meet him? Nothing. Nothing. He's stripped of his power. He's stripped of his strength. He's put down into the dust. He can't even protect his children if the sword of Esau comes swinging down upon him. No. He is made weak in every way. God has stripped him of all self-sufficiency that he might, listen to this, that he might lean entirely on the God who fights for him and blesses him, that he might lean entirely on the Lord. Oh, how slowly we lean on the Lord. How quickly we lean on our own equipment, our own strength. In fact, this truth is embedded in Jacob's name since, strictly speaking, the name Israel means God strives. Now, in this text, the wordplay will be that Jacob strives with God, but, but strictly speaking, it means God strives. And I think that's, that's intentional. Both are true. In Jacob's prevailing is God's prevailing. In Jacob's striving is God's striving. When the Israelites went out to fight, Joshua told them, The Lord will fight for you. The Lord fights the battles of his people. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Do you want to know what a Christian looks like? So many different ways that you can define a Christian. But one of the things that defines a Christian is that we know that our strength is in the Lord. We will, in our sinfulness, in our human nature, our nature that is fallen, yet redeemed, we will rise up in self-sufficiency and self-reliance. We will rise up depending on our own schemes. But deep in our hearts, in the inner man, as Paul says, we trust in the Lord, his strength. If you know nothing of that, that's a sign you're not a Christian. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. It's to lean on God, to trust in him alone. So Calvin says about this passage, For if our own strength remained intact, and we never suffered any injury or dislocation, the flesh would immediately become haughty, raised up, and we would forget that we had conquered with God's help. God will dislocate us. Praise God that he is so gracious to dislocate us. Praise God that he is so gracious as to take the rug and rip it out from under our feet. Because in doing so, he protects us against the very thing that led to Satan's fall from heaven. And Eve's fall and Adam's fall. He protects us from pride, from being haughty. And so a question for you this morning is, what if God is doing this now in your life? You're fighting and striving against the Lord in a different kind of way. 
Take this thing away from me, God. Take this thing away from me, God. Make this thing better in my life, God. And all the while, there is a loving heavenly father who is dislocating you for your good and his glory. What if that's what's happening to you even this morning? Think about that. Praise him for that. Praise him that he does not just leave you in your, in your wicked pride, but that he raises you up in him, in his strength, and teaches you to depend on him. So that's second. God is humbling Jacob. But third, and in connection to the last point, God is transforming Jacob. Jacob has always been a man of schemes and self-reliance. He schemed his way into the birthright and blessing. He worked his way to have Rachel as his wife, no matter what. He used his tricks of peeling branches to help the sheep and goats mate. He chose an opportune time to flee Laban's house. He divided his camp when he heard of Esau's approach. And he came up with an extravagant gift by which he could appease his brother. This is a man of action. Jacob is a man of action. But he's also a man of self-reliance. He's a man of scheming plans and devices. All of this scheming and self-reliance really goes back to Jacob's deceptive origins in the tent of his father, Isaac. So the Lord forces Jacob to say his name. What is your name? I am Jacob. In other words, I am the one who grasps the heel. I am the one who deceives. God forces him to deal with his past. Do you see that? His name captures his past. And so God asks him his name. Jacob is forced to say his name and therefore, or thereby, embrace his past as a reality. This is who I've been. I am a schemer. I am, have been a deceiver. And God does this so he can move Jacob away from that way of life to a new way of life. One in which he strives with God and prevails. One in which he recognizes his own weakness and need for the Lord. One in which he relies less on self and more on God. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what the Lord is doing in the prevailing and in the wounding. God is wise and he is good. And we will praise him forever for it. The third Point, finally, as we finish this morning, is the memorials. We see the men, we see the match, the wrestling match itself, and now we come to the end of the passage, the memorials. Look at verses 30 to 32 as we finish. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. These verses focus on memory, the memorials to this special event in the life of God's people. We've already seen the memorial of Jacob's name. Jacob's name is a memorial in, its, in and of itself. As he reflects on who he is as Israel, as someone addresses him as Israel, he's reminded of this event. But here it goes further. Jacob names the place after his face-to-face encounter with God. He recognizes that the holy God has met with him in the most intimate way and that he has seen him face-to-face, although under the cover of darkness. And then the passage closes with another memorial 
in the form of Israelites' diet. This is, this is interesting. This is a little epilogue at the very end of this passage referring to the tradition among the descendants of Israel going 400 plus years later to the time of Moses. Moses, who's writing this, says, up to this day, these are the dietary traditions associated with this event. What that tells us is that through all those years, this is beautiful, through all those years in, under Egyptian bondage, and now in the wilderness as Moses addresses the people, when they eat meat, they are reminded of God's strength in human weakness. In other words, these people being beaten for 400 years, being beaten, being enslaved, almost forgetting God in many cases, yet when they eat meat, they do not eat this portion of the animal in remembrance of this event in which God showed his people that he is strong in their weakness. Their very diet declared the truth that we would later find in Paul. Remember Paul as we finish 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Paul had this thing in his life. Doesn't tell us what. We can speculate. Many books have been written on it. Keep, keep speculating. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that, what that was. But he asked the Lord to take it away. Paul had somehow been dislocated. You see that? He had somehow been dislocated. And he said, God, put it back. Put it back. I don't like this. And the Lord came to Paul and said, no. I'm not going to put it back. I'm not going to remove this thorn. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul records what the Lord said to him. The Lord said to Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you hear that, people of God? My power is made perfect in weakness. Any of us who has felt our own weakness, our own incapacity, knows this to be true. That God is glorified in us when we are weak in ourselves. Verse 10, Paul says these very words, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because the God of Israel is God. There is one true living God. All other competitors are no gods at all. There is one God. He is the God of Israel. And he is a God who shows his strength in our weakness. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it exposes the realities of life in a way that nothing else can, Father, it, showing itself to be the very word of God, not the word of mere men, but the word of God as you, by your Spirit, carried along the prophets in writing these various books in their own styles, their own vocabulary, yet every word inspired by you, showing us even this morning the life that you call us to, the life that you call us away from, your assessment of the human heart and the human predicament and condition, your assessment of reality, all ringing true by our very experience in life. 
Father, we praise you for this time to sit under your word. We thank you for this reminder of how you relate to us. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there are some here gathered who are quite dislocated even at this very moment, depressed, anxious, feeling lost, feeling utterly confused, hurting physically or emotionally, immensely, God, would you help them to see, if they are your people, help them to see that you are a good father and that they will prevail. And that even in the midst of their sufferings, they are prevailing. As James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials. God, would we see our prevailing in the midst of our suffering? Would we see our winning in the midst of the wounds you allow and bring into our lives. This day, Father, would you renew us, refresh us. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's not a Christian, not a truly converted Christian, God, I pray that that they would see that there is no hope in life or death apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and, and that this message of Christ is not a new phenomenon. It goes back to the beginning of humanity. And that they can choose to follow the wisdom of this world, but in the end it will prove nothing. And their lives will be wasted. Lord, would that not be for anyone in this room? In Jesus' name, amen.